0: Well, we're continuing our series, uh, A.D. 30, which is sort of a chronological walk through the life of Christ, and today we're going to talk about a chapter that is probably familiar. We're going to look at the whole chapter. You're probably familiar with the last part of it, and I've entitled our message, Lost. So some of you who are a little older uh, probably know the name I'm going to throw out from U.S. history. Uh, How many of you have heard of Jerry Falwell? Jerry Falwell. Oh, a lot of you. Okay. That's because Canadians keep track of the U.S. a little better than the U.S. keeps track of Canada, right? We all know that. So Jerry Falwell was a preacher... Uh, in the 1970s, in particular, he became famous because he started in America, which, which, what's controversial up here, I know, and I'm not trying to convince you of anything, uh, but it was called the Moral Majority, and it was at a time in American history where where Christians were really sort of shunned out of the political uh, spectrum in the U.S., and this was sort of a movement to try to change that. And I know there's different views on how much Christians should be public figures in politics and so on, but he sort of spearheaded that movement, and he became the founder of Liberty University, which is a pretty large university in the U.S. Actually, incidentally, I think one of their their players, their quarterbacks, probably going to be taken in the first round in the NFL draft next month. So that's a pretty big university in the U.S., Christian University. And he founded that and became sort of famous through that. How many of you know who Larry Flint is? All right, Larry Flint is a publisher primarily of pornography, outspoken about First Amendment issues in the U.S., so big issues of freedom of speech freedom of the press freedom of assembly he as the publisher of hustler magazine sort of became a spokesperson for that side of the culture what you might not have known is those two individuals would travel around and debate each other on these issues john grego writes in outreach magazine The names Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint may provoke strong reactions from some people in our culture, but the following story, shared by Falwell's son, Jonathan, describes a moving conversation between the Baptist pastor and the publisher of Hustler magazine. Years ago, Jonathan, the son, was traveling with his dad, Jerry, to Florida, where the senior Falwell was debating Larry Flint. Jonathan recalls, Mr. Flint asked my dad if we could give him a ride back to Lynchburg, Virginia, in my dad's private jet. Dad said yes, so we traveled to the airport and boarded a beautiful black and gold Gulf Stream 3. As we flew to Virginia, I sat across from dad and Mr. Flint as they had a long conversation about sports, food, politics, and other ordinary topics. I was amazed and bewildered because they kept talking like old friends. And after we dropped off Mr. Flint in Lynchburg, I asked Dad, how come you could sit on that airplane and carry on a conversation with Larry Flint as if you guys were lifelong buddies? Dad, he's the exact opposite of everything you believe in. He does all of the things you preach against, and yet you're treating him like a member of your own church. Why? Dad's response changed my whole outlook on ministry. Jonathan, he said, there's going to be a day when Larry Flint is hurting and lonely. And he'll be looking for help and guidance. He's going to pick up the phone and call someone who can help him. I want to earn the right to be that phone call. I got to admit, I didn't see that coming. Did you? And I suspect that many of his church members wouldn't either. Some would resent him for it. Some would judge him for it. Some of you are judging him for it. Some would leave. And in my heart, I could not be more proud of him for that because it is one of the most Jesus-like things I've ever heard about Dr. Falwell. You say, why? How so? Engaging somebody who's making a living off of cultural decline and lust, taking advantage of women. Well, let me explain. Jesus had a problem about 2,000 years ago. He's almost three years into his public ministry. And at this point, he has proven his identity. There's no longer a case to be made. It's out there. He's no longer evasive and coy, and Jesus was. You know, you, you remember the stories, you know, who are you, Jesus? Well, who do you say I am? And he'd just play with people back and forth because he wasn't yet ready to reveal himself, because he didn't want to start a political revolution, being a messiah, etc. So he's sort of been evasive and coy for a while, but now he's admitted to his disciples he is the messiah. He's admitted to his disciples he is the son of God. They get it. They've seen the evidence. They've seen the miracles. They've walked with him for two plus years. Now he's claiming those things, particularly the son of God aspect, both in public and private, but public is the key. He's now been debating the Pharisees. He's acknowledging to them, my Father in heaven. He's now out there with it. I'm the Son of God. So now he's starting to get the blasphemy accusations, and so on. So he's admitted who he is. He's open about it. But now he's headed to the cross. And this movement he's going to lead behind has to develop sort of a culture, an attitude in it. He's going to be leaving the planet. He's predicted this new entity, which we call the church. So remember, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament is a nation that's going to be elevated by God on the world stage called Israel as they obey him. And they're going to be so supernaturally blessed by him that they're to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the rest of the world of who the true God is. That was God's plan in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, Israel didn't do a good job with that. So now in Jesus' ministry, he's predicted to people, he said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you, he said, to their religious leaders and given to another people who will prove its fruits, who will, who will be fruitful with it. And what he's talking about there is this is going to go from Israel to the church. No longer one nation called out from God to be a light to all, but people called out from all nations who believe in Jesus Christ who will be a light to all nations. And that's what we're a part of. We're a part of that movement. We're a part of that prediction, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles. Now it would start from Jerusalem. It was going to have Jewish origins. The apostles were Jewish. But it would explode onto the world stage. But here's the problem. It was never going to happen. Not with the current culture. Not with what Jesus was dealing with in his disciples and the people around them. Because the culture never accepted those kinds of people. The culture would never minister to those kinds of people. The religious culture was broken. It didn't reflect God's attitude towards people because the Pharisees dominated the religious scene. And the disciples respected the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated their Gentile rulers, the Romans, who had conquered Israel. The Pharisees hated Gentiles. They called them, and you can't make this stuff up, Food for the fires of hell. Well, there's a compassionate response to a theological question about eternity. And the Pharisees shaped public opinion in the religious world. To the Pharisees, it was us versus them. It was the insiders versus the outsiders. It's the believers versus the non-believers. And this was so ingrained in religion that it was destined, and Jesus knew this, to cripple God's ability to use the church to reach all people. There was no, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. There was no attitude like that. There was just hate and separation and the holy huddle the city on the hill, and Luke, as a gospel writer, was so concerned about this and the effects it would have and the inability of Jesus to create the church that he actually put a series of chapters together, Luke 15 through 19, which is sort of a a mini Luke, if you will, and it's been called by scholars the gospel of the Outcast. Incidentally, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, sort of a two-volume set, because he wants people to see how the church went from Jesus and the apostles to a church that would reach to the end of the Roman Empire, and so at the end of the book of Acts, you've got Paul before Caesar. And Luke sets the stage for all of that by helping us to understand God's heart for the lost. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is only in the Gospel of Luke, he alone includes this chapter. He alone includes these stories, because he wants people to understand what Jesus said about lost people, because he needed the church to understand God's heart for the lost is often different than people in the church think it is. Now I'm going to sort of go through this throughout the sermon. If you don't have a Bible, it's Luke chapter 15. There should be a Bible in front of you. Get to the New Testament, and it should be on page 60. Page 60 is Luke chapter 15. We're going to sort of go through this a section at a time. I just want to put the introductory verses up here, though, and they're on the screen. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, and some versions would put sinners in quotes because we're all sinners, but this is how the Pharisees viewed people like this. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, And the Pharisees, this leading religious sect, and the scribes, the lawyers who created the rules for the leading religious sect, grumbled. That's an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like grumbling. Oh, yeah, whatever. So Jesus is with these Pharisees and scribes saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the accusation that sets the stage for everything we're going to talk about today. Jesus is spending time with the wrong kind of people. Jesus is officially breaking the number one rule for rabbis, and the number one rule for a lot of Christians who don't get this right, guilt by association. Tax collectors, in their minds, were traitors because these would have been Jews working for Rome. So Jews working for a foreign power and oppressing power that's conquered them that doesn't allow them to have their national freedom. So these tax collectors are traitors because they work for Rome. They've abandoned Israel, in a sense. They're working against their own people for a foreign power. So, of course, you would never spend time with them. They're the enemy. And their opinion was... Jesus is developing a history of this kind of behavior. And it's not okay. Tax collectors, hookers, Gentiles, all the wrong sorts of people. And Jesus keeps showing up at their parties, showing up at their homes. He has terrible judgment. One of the 12 shouldn't be there. And we're not talking about Judas. We're talking about Matthew. He has no business being in the Jesus movement. And Jesus' actions, according to the Church of His day, they are ethical statements, and they're the kinds of statements you do not want to make, because it looks like He approves of their lives and their lifestyles and their choices. And it looks like he's complicit. Because when they accuse Jesus, he receives sinners and he eats with them. The point is, in that culture, you didn't spend time with people you didn't approve of. So if you have somebody over for a meal, you are basically saying you approve of them. That's the message. And that sent the wrong message, according to the religious elite. They're thinking, come on, Jesus! Jesus! You have this whole Messiah thing going. You have this whole Son of God thing working for you. But you need a little help in your PR department. You need some marketing help because you have an image problem. And frankly, it's the image problem that got him hung on a cross. Who you are with says something about you. That was the accusation. And Jesus is thinking, oh yes, it does. Who I am with says everything about me. So Jesus told them three stories so that he would leave no doubt about God's view of those outside of the camp. First story, the lost sheep verses three and following. He told him this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep which was lost. So he gives them a, a parable, a story, Sort of an analogy they could all relate to. In a small village, families would actually share the responsibility for shepherding collectively. Because if you have three or four sheep, you're not going to designate one of the family members to watch them all day and all night. So if you're in a small village, and this would be the setting here, a few men would be shepherds and they would take care of the village flock. It's their profession. Their own sheep would be part of this flock. And there were clear laws about property liability in this sort of arrangement. You can actually read them right after the Ten Commandments, next chapter or so, Exodus 22, 10 through 13. You actually have a list of these property laws for shepherds. If a sheep goes missing and I'm one of the town shepherds and I've got a flock of 100 sheep, four or five of them are mine, I'm taking care of everyone else's sheep as well, and they're going to pay me for this, if one of those sheep goes missing, I have to prove what happened. First, as a shepherd, I have to take an oath that I have not stolen the sheep in some way and profited from it. If the sheep is stolen, since I was responsible for its care, I have to make restitution. I have to pay for it personally. If the sheep is killed, I don't necessarily have to make restitution, but I do have to find the carcass to prove that I've not stolen it or sold it on my own. I have to produce a carcass. So this story made sense for anyone because the shepherd who's taking care of 100 sheep, maybe with his buddies, has the liability for all of those 100 lives. So shepherds are gathering up their sheep at night, perhaps, counting them as they pass into a sheepfold. Small enclosure surrounded by rock fences. Put the sheep in there at night and sleep across the entrance. 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. We're missing one. One of the flock is missing. I know shepherds knew those sheep. They named them many times. And sheep have no natural defenses. You know what sheep do when they're afraid? They huddle in a group. It's like a football huddle. And they're all trying to get to the center of it. And they're all thinking, hey, wolf, just take the one on the outside. And They're all nudging into this big group. They're defenseless. The shepherd knew of every danger those sheep could face. So he left the sheepfold. They actually in this story just leaves them out in the open. They're probably with other shepherds. And he retraces every step from that afternoon and early evening. He knows that no sheep, much less a little lamb, which this seems to be because he put it on his shoulders, no sheep can survive the night out there with coyotes or wolves or mountain lions or bears. Finally, he hears this little sheep bleeding. He grabs it, he puts it on its shoulders, he checks its body for wounds because this sheep has great value and he's ultimately responsible for it and it is found. He's been watching it its whole life. He cares for the sheep. And Jesus said, just like that, Verse six, when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, says to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost, and I tell you that in the same way, even though you're accusing me of being with the wrong kind of people, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Religion sees us versus them. Jesus didn't. Religion says, we can't be touched by people who are far from God. They're going to contaminate us and our children. Jesus says, heaven rejoices at the one. The 99 are not God's concern right now. He longs for the lost one. His eyes never leave the lost one. We've got some bad theology about this in conservative Christianity We think God only cares about us because we're in the church. He never loses sight of the lost one. Another story, the lost coin. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. Now this, this story is a little, a little harder to understand at first glance because we're thinking, okay, somebody's got 10 coins and they lose one. It really doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It looks like maybe a poor woman had 10 coins and she just took a 10% hit on her liquid net worth. I mean, that's sort of what it looks like. And, and that's sad, but I don't really think it's worth the drama of Jesus telling this story. Scholars now think that the coin was actually a part of what we would call, I believe the word would be karkush. And, and it was a part of an ancient Jewish woman's headband. And a woman would start wearing this right when she sort of uh, got married until menopause, basically. It's a statement that she's, she's a married woman She's probably a mother, and this is sort of like her wedding band, if you will, and she's wearing it across her forehead. And so these 10 coins would be embedded in some sort of frame that would hold them. So this young woman has not lost 10% of her net worth. This woman has lost part of this special, sentimental, valuable jewelry. It's like she lost the diamond out of her ring, to give you an analogy. It represents her marriage. It's got sentimental value as well as real value. She's a poor woman with a small house, a dirt floor, some straw mats, little to no light. She's hoping it's inside the house. Maybe she retraced her steps if she went to market. She's told her girlfriends, just pray that I can find this. I don't even want to tell my husband yet. And so she grabs a lamp, she lights a candle, and she begins to sweep her dirt floor carefully, hoping to hear a faint metallic sound. She's looking for its shape in the dim light. Very little windows in their homes back then. She's got this little lamp. She's praying the whole time, getting more desperate by the minute. How will I ever tell him I've lost this? And then in the dirt on the floor, she sees its shape. Dirty, dusty, but precious. And her heart leaps and she calls her friends and it was like heaven on earth. And Jesus says, just like that, in the same way I tell you, verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's where God's attention is. We think it's all about us. In fact, if you go to a Bible college or seminary and you get in a theology class about God's relationship with people who are outside of faith, one of the questions that will be asked, and you'll have a class debate about this. That was bored; everything was online and you can't have good class debate. Some things in the world will never be the same. Sorry. You know, does God answer the prayers of an unbeliever? Does God pay attention to an unbeliever? Does he have to? Does he have any obligation? Because we think God pays attention to people once they enter God's family. And I think this passage is, oh no, Yeah, it's not just then. The best parties in heaven are when a person crosses the line of faith. Those are the best parties. They are stadium events with the angels. When a person outside of faith, that a lot of people in the Christian community would say, God can't be thinking about them. Look at how they live. Don't want to touch them. Don't want to have their kids around our kids. When one of those people crosses the line of faith, tickets are sold out in heaven at that event, because that's what God cares about. And then he tells the story that we're all familiar with. A man had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country and There he squandered his estate with loose living. The word squandered there is the idea of being wasted. It's the same word you use for winnowing grain, like throw it up in the air and the chaff blows away. It was as if he took his estate and threw it in the air and the money blew away. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Remember, Jewish audience, They're going to love this story. Everyone's heart turns against that kid. Okay. Jewish kid, raised in a good family. Every opportunity, just to relate to modern culture, privileged. Every opportunity, knew what was right and wrong. And now he ends up feeding pigs. Shame on him. And they're all hoping bad things happen to him. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, in the Greek that would be, when he came to himself, it's an interesting word. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my fathers hired men, day laborers, have more than enough bread, and I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've, no, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This, as you know, is one of the greatest pieces of literature in and outside of religion in history. And one of the greatest pieces of art as well as it's been replicated. Pictures this wealthy Jewish family in an agricultural setting. Two boys are born into it. The first, the perfect son. The perfect son, which I was not, by the way. Fourth born, questioned everything, pushed back. First son, responsible. It does describe my brother, actually. Responsible, obedient, loyal, the perfect son. The second son, a disappointment in every conceivable way. One day, second son comes to his dad. He wanted his inheritance. And I love it how we always say as, as, as pastors, as people who read the scriptures, look at you know, historical issues, we always say, in that culture, in that culture, it was an insult for you to ask your, for your inheritance ahead of time. It was like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, like a death wish for your father. Well, I, I want to inform you, it's not just that culture. My dad's in his 80s, and if I were to go to my dad and say, hey, Dad, can we like pony up right now? I mean, I know you might need this to make it in your semi-assisted living facility there, but could I get my share now? I would say that's an insult in all cultures. Wouldn't you agree? So the father's insulted, but he complies. He knows there's no telling this son anything. He's going to have to live life his way. He's going to have to learn the hard way. He's not like the older son. So the disappointment with his fortune couldn't leave fast enough. Only took a matter of days, the scripture says. He didn't want to just get out of the house. He left Israel, he went to a far country, probably traveled to the west, got down to the the major trade route along the Mediterranean which was called the Way of the Sea. He would have gone north into Asia Minor or south towards Africa. He left Israel and he left with that all of its rules, all of its restraint, all of the religion that kept him from living the fun life. And everything that was forbidden became everything he wanted. Alcohol, the drugs of his day, prostitutes, gambling. He squandered his estate with loose living, the verse says. Again, used of winnowing weight. It's as if everything his dad worked for was thrown up in the air, just like grain that's been crushed and the chaff blows away. And there went all of his money in a very short period of time. And about the time the money dried up, so did the job market. Never a good combination. A famine hit the whole region. There was no escaping it. Soon he's hungry. All the friends he gained by buying everyone drinks at the bar, they're gone. All the women he knew, they're not going to spend time with him if there's no money in it. Soon he's hungry. Maybe he's on the street. And his only opportunity in that foreign land is pig farming. Now when Jesus said this, you just need to understand, this a Jewish audience, you know, pigs aren't kosher, can't eat pork, no bacon, which is what's the worst thing about Jewish culture. But anyway, when Jesus said this, there would have been just a collective moan, a gasp in the room. Jewish boy hits rock bottom. And they would have been thrilled because it would have been like, okay, that's justice, but it's also awful. What a disappointment, what a disgrace. If he didn't break every one of God's commands at that point, it was only due to lack of time, because he tried. He was on a roll. This kid had done everything wrong. He started out on his journey, he's on his camel, and he's playing Highway to Hell, you know, ACDC. That's supposed to be funny. Pick it up a little. That took some work. And now, he's got nothing. Nothing. And he's pig farming. He's starving. Maybe he's laying in his bed one night. He's got those stomach pains that we in the Western world never really feel. He's really been hungry for a couple of days. And he starts reminiscing about home. You know, it wasn't that bad. Even though I hated my dad, and even though I didn't want to do anything he said, and even though he spouted God's laws like they were his laws, and his laws like they were God's laws, when I think about it, everyone around my dad did okay. Even his servants, even the day laborers in the fields had better lives than I have, and i have given up all of what I had, and so the Bible says he came to his senses, literally he came to himself. And that became his goal was to just be like a day laborer or a servant on his dad's ranch. And so he's lying in bed that night. And he rehearses his confession. I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my dad I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Can I, just, can I just get a job on this place? All I care about is staying alive at this point. Which is where the song Staying Alive came from now thank you Kirsten or Tammy sorry he just wants to live he rehearsed his confession and here's the key I want you to understand about this story and we've all heard this story a lot the story is not about the son the point of the story was never about the son Because remember, the accusation here is that Jesus is spending time with the wrong people. Jesus is still answering the complaint about his dinner guests. He receives these people, he eats with them. It looks like he approves. This is about God's attitude towards sinners, this is about the Father and the rejoicing that would take place when the son comes home, because the father never turned against him. The scriptures say in this parable, well, he was still a long ways off, so the boy, the young man, is coming back, back through the way of the sea towards home, and while he's still a long ways off, dad sees him, because dad never stopped looking. Every night, When the chores were done, he sits on that porch. He's thinking, God, bring my son home. So that day, he's the figure of this man. He's thinner, he's slower, but he's got the same walk. You know, everyone's got to walk. He's thinking, that that might be him and his heart melts, and as he got closer, he knew it's him, and he ran, and scholars say this is a little embarrassing for an old man, and I get this, because the older you get, the less you want to show your legs, and so he ran. He, He picked up his robes to run, and he gets to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. And as soon as he holds him, the son begins this confession. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And dad is cutting him off mid-sentence just about and saying to the servants, hey, it's time for a feast, man. It's going to be a stadium event. Get a robe, which symbolizes that he is a guest of honor. We're not thinking about what he did. We're not thinking about the drugs and the alcohol and the hookers. Just get a robe. He's a guest of honor. Get a ring, which symbolizes he's still in the family. Get some sandals, which symbolizes he's a free man. And kill the fattened calf, because we're going to feast. Because my son was lost, and he's found. The lost sheep is found (laughs) rejoicing. The lost coin, part of that woman's Sort of engagement band is found. There's rejoicing. The lost son is found and there's rejoicing because that's how God feels when the people that we don't want to be next to sometimes, the people we feel might contaminate our little Christian community. People we don't want our kids around. The people at work we don't really want to befriend because they're not like us and they have views different than ours. When one of those people whose God's eyes never leave is found, there is rejoicing in heaven. That's the business Jesus was in. Just a couple applications as we close. First, you are the prize. You were the prize. Never forget it. I love this story. Pastor Matt Chandler writes about a time he and a couple of his friends invited a young woman named Kim to a concert. Matt was hopeful that Kim would come to Christ that evening. However, what occurred was a train wreck. And in retrospect, he was grateful for the experience because it changed the way he saw how to proclaim holiness in light of the cross. He said the preacher took the stage and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics about STDs. His big illustration was to take out a single red rose to this, you know, young crowd. He smelled the rose dramatically, caressed its petals, and talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. And then he threw the rose into the crowd and encouraged everyone to pass it around. And as he neared the end of his message, he asked for the rose back. But by now it's broken and drooping and petals are falling off. He held up this now ugly rose for all to see, and his big finish with the gospel is this. Now who in the world would want this? His tone, and his words were merciless. His essential message, which is supposed to represent Jesus, was this, don't be a dirty rose. God won't want you, people won't want you. Matt didn't hear from Kim for a few weeks. So one day her mother called Matt to inform him Kim had been hurt in an accident, and so he went to visit her in the hospital. And in the middle of our conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, she remembered that illustration. She said, "Do you think I'm a dirty rose? Is that what you think of me?" My heart sank, and I began to explain to her the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. You are the rose. It doesn't matter how broken, how damaged, what you regret, what you'd never want another person here to know about you, and I've got some of that. You are the rose. The image of God resides in you, which means in God's mind you were worth dying for. You are the rose. And Jesus wants the rose. Second, a person who has never experienced grace is going to have a hard time celebrating it for others. So have you, really. The older brother, there's a little tag to this story. The elder brother is meant to represent the Pharisees in this story. And so right after this celebration begins, the older brother's in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summons one of the servants, begins inquiring about, what's going on? He said, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours came and who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. This is an important part of the parable. This is a shot at the Pharisees. It's a shot at the religious crowd. It's a shot at us when we don't appreciate what God is trying to do in the lives of other people. This older brother wanted nothing to do with this celebration. Why? Well, because theologically, this older brother's sort of on the merit system. He he doesn't think he needs grace. He's thinking he's so good, he's earned it, and he's basically saying that to his dad. I've been good, you don't celebrate me. But that's the point. He never had his own sense of a need for grace. So the question is, who do you identify with? I'm not saying you're, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're not following Jesus, but you can be following Jesus and still identify a little bit more with son number two. You know God got a pretty good thing when he found me. I've been pretty good since I was a child. I don't know if I even needed the cross. No, we're all the prodigal. We're all the prodigal. We're all son number one. And if you can't get excited about what God may do in the person's life around you who desperately needs him, it makes me wonder how much you recognize how desperately you needed Jesus in the first place. And if that's your deficit, you need him more than you think. And finally, God still runs to lost people. But here's how he does it, he does it through you. Are you making it possible? God still runs to lost people. Let me say it this way. If God still runs to lost people, can he do it through you? Are you making it possible? Who sits at your table? Who's at your parties? You know, one of the primary jobs of anybody who does what I do is to try to affect the culture. That's, that's my job. I mean, you call it preaching and leading. I would say it's to, to affect the culture, to shape who we are as a body. And one of those things is to create a weekend culture where somebody at any stage in their spiritual maturity before Jesus or after Jesus can feel comfortable here and come to grow and know him more. That's the culture we need to create. Any stage of the journey, you can come here and learn and grow and it's not weird or awkward. But another culture that we all need to change is our weekday culture, not just the weekend culture, but the weekday culture, and that is a little more personal, so I'm going to climb up in the pew in front of you and kind of poke you a little bit and say, who are your friends? And if all your friends know Jesus, it's got to change. It has to change. It can't be. We can't say we're following Jesus when we don't live like Jesus. And that should permeate all parts of our culture, connecting groups, who we have over for dinner, who we wanna spend time with. I hope there's a bunch of people in your life who are like, well I really don't know where they're at, but I'll probably know in a year or two because they're becoming good friends of ours. Pastor Paul, I'd love to invite you over on Thursday nights, but I can't because we're getting together with our neighbors and actually we got no time for you for three or four months, Pastor Paul. I would love to hear that from you. I'd give you a big smack on the cheeks. No, I won't. We need to be like Jesus. The accusation, you are with the wrong kind of people. Jesus' answer, that's exactly what God wants from us. Because they're lost. Just like that lost sheep Lost coin, lost son. And when they come home, heaven has a party. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, worship team's going to be up here leading us with one last song, and I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward at the same time. And if you have a prayer request, I love this about Bethany's culture, if you have a prayer request for anything, you just come forward and pray with one of them uh, as we're singing our last song. God, we thank you for your goodness to us, and I thank you that you are like this, because without this, I would not have had a chance and neither would anybody in this room. We have all drunk deeply from your grace, and we all needed it badly. Help us to see everyone in the world around us the same way. We're all in process with you. We all need Jesus, we all need the cross, we all need a savior. Help us to not sort of get in the camp And just have our acquaintances and our friends as part of the camp, but to recognize we're always in that process of loving everybody as you did. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.